0: actually watching people use the product, not sitting and listening to customer complaints, not giving demos of what the future product will be like, but actually just sitting there and, and seeing what it's like to use the product. Yeah. And that makes a huge difference. That you, It's like a hockey stick of improvement.
1: Welcome to the What is UX podcast. The show where we interview design leaders about their journey and experience so that you may learn from them. I'm your host, Peck Pong Pat. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the What is UX podcast. I'm your host, Peck Pong Pat. I'm the founder of Impeccable a Digital Product Studio. Now, since COVID, virtually remote, but we work with enterprises, high-tech startups to help them bring their vision to life. And on this episode, we have amazing guest, Jared Spool, who has been in the industry for many, many decades, and he's given uh, lots of keynote talks on UX, including UX Australia, UX Lisbon, UX London, South by Southwest, and he's got a UX design school, he's a speaker, and uh, welcome to the show. (laughs) I'll let you introduce yourself. I'm missing a lot of stuff.
0: Oh, well, I'm just me. (laughs)
1: But <laughs> well, you've uh, been so. Tell us about uh, a little bit about your business, Center Center UIE. I, I understand it's a merging of your two two businesses.
0: Yeah. So in 1998, I started. 1988, I started a business which we called User Interface Engineering, and it the goal of the business we've we've our focus has changed or the way we do work has changed a lot over the years. Our focus hasn't changed. Our focus from the beginning has been to figure out how to just eliminate all the bad design from the world. So that's been our mission for 30 going. It'll be our 34th year.
1: Congratulations. That is, you know, not first of all so many business there's so many statistics of of businesses right however however many fail the first year how many fail by the fifth year and then how many are left by the 10th year so having a 30 year old business is is something to be proud of
0: yeah yeah i mean i've i've i joke <laughs> that that i'm just not very good at 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 killing a business i try every year and i just fail at it so you know 2021 was Another another example of a business I was just not competent enough to to run into the ground. Douglas Adams once wrote that flying is easy; all you do is is aim for the ground and miss. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel sometimes like that's what running a business is like.
1: <laughs> well, it's, uh, I think it speaks of the resiliency.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it does. It does. i And fortunately, I've always had a great team. The people around me are, are very good at what they do. So they they carry me.
1: <laughs> Did uh, UIE, User Interface Engineering, start out as a service firm? Because I'm sure it's...
0: Yeah, kind of... yeah. We, we, the idea at the time was that, you know, the thing that was stopping us from having everything be a great design was that, people weren't doing enough usability testing i had i had i was i was in the room for the very first usability tests that anybody ever did back in the 80s i was there when we were figuring out what are now sort of the standard techniques of of usability testing and so i was i was very much bought into the idea that that this was a way to to see your users to understand what they were doing and I thought well the world you know it's just that that companies don't have the resources to build their own usability lab like we did in our in the company I was in and we they don't have the psychologists and all those things so if we could offer that as a service people could do usability testing and they'd make their products much, much better and and the world would be a better place. And and so that's sort of how we started in our first few years. We're just figuring out how to do inexpensive usability testing. This was before anybody else was doing this as a service. There were no other, we were the first to, to start doing this. And then as time went on, other companies started doing it. It became more favorable. We were at the time we were we were working for all these big companies and all these incredible products we worked on everything from pilot cockpits to you know airplane cockpits commercial and jet fighter cockpits to spreadsheets to molecular modeling tools to a device that you use to clean the the fusion rods in your nuclear power plant to a system that the eventual space station. This was before the space station, but a system that the astronauts on the space station would use to to be able to read the manual while they were fixing the space station during an EVA. How do you how do you use a manual when you're in a spacesuit? Basically, was the question. And so, so we you know we we worked on a whole variety of things, and and we were learning all this stuff, and we had done a lot of work on in the late 80s early 90s on windows interfaces and dos interfaces and all these things and we started to see patterns and so we were we were it was very popular for us to go around explaining the patterns we were seeing in how people were using these interfaces didn't matter what the product was people used the interfaces basically the same and those were so popular that we just started writing that up and teaching workshops about what we were learning from the research we were doing. And basically we were letting our corporate and, and government contracts pay for this research that we would then make public to folks. And, and then over time, that became the bigger part of the business was just teaching workshops and, and sharing what we were learning from research. And, and, Nobody else was doing that. So we were doing that for a long time. And then the web got going and we were doing that with the web. We were among the first to ever do usability tests on websites and start learning the patterns of websites, what works, what doesn't. We wrote a book on the topic and now we're into sort of the 2000s. And, and, you know, most of the things that people take for granted in websites today, things like the navigation and search and stuff like that, we had done a lot of the preliminary research on. And then as that was sort of becoming common knowledge and was going there, we we shifted our interest into, into, if we know all this stuff about what makes good design, why are we still putting out crappy design? So we started to look at what was happening in the organizational dynamics what was what was happening there and started looking at you know what it means to be a designer and what it means to run a design organization and in the last decade or so we've we've very much focused on how you grow design organizations and and what happens when you have go from having two or three ux people in a in an in an organization to having a hundred or two hundred or five hundred or a thousand or two thousand and and what does that What does that mean? What does that shift mean? And most recently, our focus has been on on strategy, right? Because you know now we have organizations. It's not it's not unheard of to have an organization that has five hundred UX people or a thousand UX people, and yet they're still putting out crappy stuff. So now the question is, why does that happen? And so we've been looking at what's happening at the most senior levels. Why? is the organization still treating UX as this sort of nice to have thing that's you know making things pretty instead of actually designing and so our our shift there was was sort of looking at things strategically somewhere in there not somewhere i can tell you exactly it was in march of 2012 the one of the things we were sort of in that midst of teams growing and we were looking at the patterns that were happening and one of the problems that was that was happening continually was that there just weren't enough designers right these organizations were looking to hire more u x people more researchers more designers more more content people, and there just weren't enough of them and I was trying to figure out how we get schools and universities to produce more of these folks. And I was sort of complaining that there was this disconnect. We were, you know, the schools that were producing HCI and and design master students and and these different programs that were existing. And there weren't that many of these programs, but the schools that were producing, this is pre-boot camp. They weren't producing people that hiring managers wanted the 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 folks that they were producing were very theoretical, were very academic, were slow and 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 didn't understand the the way business works, didn't understand how how what it takes to produce to deliver a product or a service and those that lack of agility, that lack of speed was was problematic. And I was I was at a dinner talking to, to a friend about this problem and saying, look, the schools need to step up. They need to rethink their curriculum. And, and she said, you should just start a school. And I thought that was the dumbest idea I'd ever heard. And, and what do I know about starting a school? I barely can run a company. And she just kept saying, you, you need to start this. And I dismissed the idea immediately, but it just stuck with me and I couldn't shake it. And I did that thing that I tend to do, which is go and and find close friends and, and explain to them this wacky idea. And hopefully one of them is a good friend and will just talk me out of it because it's a stupid idea. And what I found after Talking to a whole bunch of people about this idea was that I I just don't have any close friends because everybody kept telling me (laughs) that this was a, a great idea. And so about this, one of the people who I talked to asked if shared this idea yet with a woman named Leslie Jensen Inman. And I'd known Leslie, I'd worked with her on some of the standards projects for the web, but I hadn't shared this idea with her. And and he said, "No, you should definitely do that." She's she's working on something similar. So I I had every intention of doing that when I saw Leslie tweet that it was her last day at her last job, and that she didn't know what the future held, but she knew that it was going to be interesting. And so I sent her a, a DM on Twitter and and said, "I think we should talk." And we ended up having getting on a phone that afternoon and. We've been talking about this ever since. And and that's where the Center Center uh, UX Design School was born. And, And Leslie, who her previous job was at the University of Tennessee, Chattanooga. She was doing her doctorate there. And her thesis was on how to build a design school that's prepared for industry. Turns out that her thesis and my ideas almost 100% overlapped. She had a lot of educational theory that I didn't have, and she knew how universities worked. I had a lot of understanding of what industry needed, and so and so we together, we just sort of created this school. And so that started, we had our first cohort start in 2016, and they've, it's a two-year program, so they all graduated, and we were doing just fine up until the pandemic. We were between cohorts, and unfortunately, we had to to put the project on mothballs and we're waiting for the pandemic, in particular Chattanooga, which is where the, the school is housed, to come out of the pandemic so that people can move to Chattanooga again and join us in the program and we can start it up. Believe it or not, that's the short version of the history.
1: <laughs> that's that's great. Well, you you did it in like 15 minutes. So it's absolutely the short version of summing up 15, you know, 30, yeah, 30 years. A couple things kind of stood out one the the research you know could you give us the the projects that you worked on sounds so interesting so how do that how do those things work like in terms of like the the cockpit or or you know the the software for for you know astronauts to kind of read their manual while while trying to fix stuff in in a spacesuit how how did that? actually work with with your you know do they bring that into kind of your user study like like you know do you drag a (laughs) how do you fit a plane or a cockpit into yeah how how does no
0: no we always had to go places We, we we i've never had my own usability lab i see um we we what what we learned how to do back in the 80s was was bring a lab anywhere and I personally prefer not to use a, a formal lab. I, I'd rather use a conference room or something. But the cockpit studies were all done in simulators, in airplane simulators. And some of the simulation for the EVA spacesuit manual was done in a neutral buoyancy tank at the Johnson Space Center. So, oh, very cool. yeah. So, you know. I, w- I sat in a control room but the users were in scuba suits in a space suit in a 6 what is it 60,000 gallon pool with a full size version of modules of the space station.
1: Yeah. <laughs> that is so intriguing. Uh, so that 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 probably involved a lot of traveling back in the day. So how how has that service Now, you know, given the state of COVID now, how have you adapted that service?
0: Well, we stopped doing that type of research in the late 2000s. One of the things that we learned was that that when you do research for clients, the clients basically want you to focus on their stuff, not necessarily on the stuff you're interested in. And (laughs) there were lots of things we were interested in that... we were having get trouble getting clients to pay for it directly. So sure. we went to a sort of different business model and we've changed our business model many times over the years, but we went to a different business model where instead of having clients hire us for a project, but we still were doing some projects, but not very many like this more in an agency form. But, but instead of having clients do that, we would basically fund the project ourselves and then, use the revenues from workshops and conferences and publications to to replenish and and get build up our our pool of cash so that we could then go do more research and that allowed us to pick and choose the projects we wanted to do versus the projects that versus finding some client that 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 wanted us to do some project, and then we'd have to argue over what parts we could share and what parts we had to keep.
1: Yeah, I, I was going to get to that, but you answered the question. It was like, we, you know, we we also do cli- we do client work, and a lot of times, you know, there are some insights and and, and research. But how do you, how did you get around? You know, as as an, a client engagement, because obviously it's their IP, and and they don't want to necessarily give away the. Their competitive advantage or stuff they yeah. Learned. So you
0: have to you have to establish that up front. You have to you have to say okay, this is what we're going to do, and this is what's going to be competitively advantage for you. But then there's lots of stuff we're going to learn here, and the reason you're hiring us is because we know lots of stuff. And so that's part of the deal. If you want, if you want <laughs> how to how we know us,
1: right, how we know lots of stuff is this is what we do.
0: <laughs> yeah. If you want to get us, then then some substantive part of this we have to put into the public domain. And yeah, it's possible we could share it with your competitors, but we're not going to share everything. We're not going to even share that we worked for you. But we will, but but everybody, you know, all boats rise when the tide goes up. And so the more the more we as a field learn about this stuff, the more advantage everybody has. Yeah. You just get first access to this. Yeah. So we did that for a long time. We probably did that for about a decade, that type of research. But at, at some point, our interests were even broader than any given client wanted to do. And, and the projects were just getting more and more expensive. And we realized that, that if we were going to pay for them, we needed to, we need to have a different funding model than finding a client with deep pockets. Right.
1: What are some of the stuff that you found in those early days that now, as you say, like lots of designers, it's, or, or, you know, industries it's, it's common knowledge or it's become sort of an established pattern.
0: Oh, there's so many things. I mean, just, there's a notion that we did a lot of work in back in the 90s called the scent of information, which was basically this idea that people have to, have, have to, to understand what they're going to get when they click on, say, a link or a, a menu navigation. They have to understand what is behind that before they'll click. And if it, if they don't understand it they don't click and so all the the products the apps the the websites that that where the menus are clear and understandable they describe what you expect them what you what you're going to get? That all sort of came out of that scent of information research, which was a project we did in conjunction with Xerox Park. There was a group there that did a bunch of work on what was called information foraging. This idea that that you could you could almost mathematically describe the the probability that someone would be successful at finding a piece of information in a large information space based on the clarity of the labeling that went into it. And what we were able to do was to take their sort of academic theories and actually demonstrate them when they worked and when they didn't work on websites. and we ended up publishing a, a bunch of studies and and reports that that became sort of standard in the industry back in the early 2000s as the web was growing that really sort of talked about how do you how do you build out information and we we sort of demonstrated that there were, in essence, about seven different types of pages that you can have in a website and, and that each of those pages has a certain behavioral mechanic to it now people just internalize that and they just you know when you create a set of web templates you just automatically do it because you're copying all these other web templates that automatically do that but that wasn't the way things were done back in the early days of the web and and people were inventing all sorts of things that didn't work and and we were able to explain why they worked and why they didn't work and and that became the basis of how successful sites did things you know it's so those are those are some of the types of practices that are there if you think about clarity in in how design how we think about what a what makes a good design a good design a lot of that people didn't understand and there was a there was a lot of there were so many crimes against humanity back in the last <laughs> Uh they still are. <laughs> uh, there are, but they're they're they they are much it's 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 much, much less. Mostly because people just copy what other people did, and there's enough examples of good work out there that that when we copy what other people did, we get to the right result. Yeah. So but back then there was nobody to copy, so the 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 end result was much less, much, much more likely that that you would you would end up with something that just was unusable yeah yeah
1: yeah there were some you know as i look back on kind of web days or early mobile app days there there were some highlight ui or design patterns that that seemed to work really well due to explore They, they weren't patterns right for example like the pull to refresh at some point was like that was brand new it was like oh i can do this and right you know instead of having like an explicit reload button or stuff like that. Autocomplete, you know, as you type and.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of our work in the, in those days was explaining why things worked or why they didn't work. And pull to refresh is a great example because pull to refresh is one of those things that you can't possibly discover accidentally. Somebody has to show you. And so they either show you through the design, they give some sort of clue in the design that says you need to, do something that's the in effect pulling, or you need an explicit refresh button, or you need someone literally to just show you how that works. And lots of design is, we referred to it at the time as as STD, socially transmitted design elements.
1: (laughs) I love it. (laughs)
0: And drag and drop is another example of that, right? You won't discover drag and drop on your own. You won't know that something can be dragged from here to there until somebody shows you it can be dragged from here to there. So how do we, how do we, how do we show those clues? How do we do that? So a lot of things like, you know, it, now it's not uncommon to have a little animation that shows something being dragged into something else to give you a hint. A lot of that came out of the work that we did.
1: The show don't tell you, you mentioned, you know, that as, or You know, even large organizations with, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of designers still produce, can still produce bad design, bad, bad products. Can you touch on that? I mean, I kind of feel the same way sometimes. It's like, how, how can, how can this possibly be, right? Like a lot of these designers have much more experience, you know, the combined experience and, and stuff like that. They're obviously hiring really competent folks. But what about the organization is causing this, and how do you, you know, what are your tips and remedies for this?
0: Well, there's a bunch of things that are happening, and and large organizations that are sort of happening simultaneously that create this sort of perfect storm of crappy design. One one of the things that happens is that as organizations grow, they get more and the 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 people who make the most influential decisions get farther and farther away from the people who are affected by those decisions you know when when an organization's really tiny and i mean really tiny like two three people right the people making the decisions are right there talking to the people who are affected right the people who are designing what that service is like what the products are like are talking to users and customers every day because it's the only way they survive. And so they have this direct contact and that direct contact lets them be very agile, be very adaptive. If a customer says, I would pay you more money if you did it this way, they just do it that way.
1: And more empathetic because you're not in an ivory tower removed from all that.
0: Exactly, exactly. And what happens is is that the organization grows, and it's no longer efficient for those people who used to be in great touch with customers to 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 be sitting next to a customer and helping them every day. You know, it's funny. there was there's been this recent brouhaha in the internet, this decision that the management of Doordash made.
1: I was gonna bring that up in this conversation, but I'm glad you did.
0: <laughs> yeah. Where they're insisting that all of the product managers and engineers and designers and everybody actually go out and deliver, do, do shifts as de, as delivery, you know, DoorDash is a is a yeah. restaurant and food delivery. For like
1: once a month, right? It's, this is not like a
0: Yeah, yeah. That but they have to go out and they have to they have to work these shifts. And there's been all this pushback from the folks saying, I wasn't hired to do this crap, you know, and which says a lot about who they're hiring, right? And a funny thing is is that it that you know this has been part of the corporate ethos from the very beginning, apparently. The CEO used to run, the C the co-founders and the CEO used to, I guess still do run delivery shifts every so often and and are part of that. But most organizations aren't doing that and you know, the CEO of GE is not you know in the surgical suite watching their medical products be made, be used and they're not in the climbing the tower on a wind turbine watching, you know, the repair people fix the, the wind turbines. So they're, they're, you know, they're, they're not doing this stuff. They're, they're off doing what executives do, what managers do. And, and there's this big thing. And, and what, the way I think of it is, is insulation, right? There's, you know, when, when the organization is small there's no insulation between those decision makers and the decision and the people who are affected by the decisions. But as the organization gets bigger and bigger and bigger, that insulation starts to build up. It just it just it happens whether you want it to happen or not. And and you have to do something active like the DoorDash executives are doing, where you basically say we're gonna we're gonna break through that insulation and we're gonna we're gonna fight it. And we're going to make sure that everybody has this type of exposure all the time. And that's dramatic, right? We we figured out a long time ago that, that you don't need a lot of exposure to see a big difference in the quality of the products. It turned out to be about two hours every six weeks for every member of the team. But that means that, you know, your finance, your CFO and your head of product and all these people have to spend two hours, at least two hours every six weeks, actually watching people use the product, not sitting and listening to customer complaints, not giving demos of what the future product will be like, but actually just sitting there and and seeing what it's like to use the product. And that makes a huge difference. That you it's like a hockey stick of improvement. You you just see suddenly you get to that two hour mark and the quality of the products just skyrocket at that point. And it makes makes a really big difference. And so that's one of the factors that that, that prevents organizations from delivering great products is that they 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 don't have that exposure. They they're not exposed. Another factor. Is that they don't have a vision of what a great experience looks like. They they haven't set goals. They just they're just constantly going for incremental improvement. You see this in now in this sort of new wave where everybody's talking about OKRs, and, you know, objectives and key results. The objectives are all things like you know, increase Latin American sales by fifteen percent. It's like okay. Why fifteen percent, right? And how does anybody's life get better because we've increased Latin American sales by fifteen percent? I mean, maybe the shareholders' lives get better, but 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 you know, how do, how does that help our customers? And how does it help our our users? And so, what the best organizations do is they establish outcome-based goals that are based on outcomes that are affect the user's experience, right? Instead of saying we're going to increase sales in Latin America by 15%, we go and we figure out what do people in Latin America need to make their life better? And then we build something they want to pay for. And we sell it to them. <laughs> and the byproduct is that we'll see Latin American sales go up by 15%. That's not the goal. That's a byproduct of actually having a goal of we're going to deliver this thing that's going to make users' lives substantially better. And we're going to do that by studying why their lives aren't better today. And so that means increasing our research capability and making it part of the goal-setting process, right? So many goals are picked arbitrarily just based on, well, you know, Last year we grew by fifteen percent, so why don't we grow by fifteen percent again this year instead of asking the question, what's the target we want to hit right instead of just saying, well let's just do more We're, we we did more last year, so let's do more this year let's right. say, well actually let's get closer to a target so having a, a clear vision and under, and setting goals that are all about getting closer to those to that is right.
1: But also creating value to the user, right? Kind of, right. Kind of like the yes. lens of that.
0: Yeah, and and making it human centered, right? Yeah, you know, not just making the business better. You know, a subscription service says, "Well, we want to we want to increase retention by <laughs> by ten percent." You know the the what does that actually look like? Attention by 10%, retention by 10%. Well, why are customers not resubscribing? Why are they canceling their subscriptions? Mm-hmm. Let's understand the root causes of that and deliver something that they would rather have value for.
1: Yeah. It it kind of reminds me, it made me think of this image. Somebody had put an infographic of the iPod AirPods revenue against mm-hmm. many other businesses. And it was larger than many top tech companies uh, combined even. So the AirPods, just the AirPods business alone was b- bigger than Adobe or U- Uber and Nvidia, and then a bunch of other you know stragglers as well. And that product could not have just been come up you know purely from a, just that those incremental OKRs, right? right oh let's 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 make more money on computers let's make more money from phones you know 15 percent, right like sell more phones versus really understanding the user of how do i make this experience better how do i make the hands-free experience of iphone or whatever yeah that's exactly
0: right i mean it's it's you start with you start with not how much money can we make you start with 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 what will actually make people's lives better? And you focus on that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You've given me so much food for thought because I'll say I'm just as guilty of setting lame OKRs of, yeah, we we did this much this year. So therefore, next year, let's just see what we can do, <laughs> you know, set realistic goals and increase them and do more. But uh, having that lens of how can I make our customers' lives, you know, better maybe even 10x better right like is there anything we can do if we can can we improve the service in a way the offering so that it's, it's so much better that they want to come and spend more money
0: exactly out? yeah that is the real trick to this right is is thinking about the product in terms of the benefit it delivers Mm-hmm. versus in terms of of what the technology is or what the underlying business model is or or those types of things and and of course you have to produce it sustainably and in a cost-effective way and there has to you know there has to you have to bring in more money than you put out because that's not sustainable from a business standpoint so there's all sorts of things that have to happen but that is a a secondary attribute. If you don't mm-hmm. have the product that benefits people, it doesn't matter, you know, unless you're a monopoly, right? It won't matter. And and it it's just not going to go anywhere. And that and so that's where where a lot of folks get stuck. Mm-hmm.
1: As we're getting up on time, I did want to call out, you know, when when people ask me the value of design and why they should care about UX design, why is design so important? I invariably, one of the things I reference is your blog post about the $300 million button. Yeah, if, and For those of you who don't know, it's, it's a blog post put out by UIE where you had a client where by making a small change... To this big e-commerce giant, you're able to attribute or get what, $300 million a year more in revenue through through this small design change. And uh, I think to me that that clearly illustrates like, this is why you should care about design because you just made it easier for someone to check out. And what are some of the other found things that you found that are that I think our readers would find very, uh, listeners would find very interesting? especially the value of design.
0: Yeah, much of our work for the last few years has been talking about the value of design and, and either how you demonstrate the value of design or how you prove it. One of the articles that's been very popular over the years is, is a, an article about how you, how you shift the conversation on return on investment from new investment to existing investment. And it's it has to do with this notion that, that when an organization produces a crappy user experience in their products or services, th- there are costs that come back to the organization, right? If you have a poorly designed e commerce website and as a result, customers can't buy the products they want from you, or they buy products and it turns out that the website didn't describe them well or there was some aspect of them that that went poorly. some aspect of the sale that went poorly you have to deal with refunds you have to deal with customer support calls you have to deal with returns you have to deal with uh future lost sales because they had such a poor experience with you. And, you know, I'll never buy from those people again. These types of experiences are very costly to the organization, but they don't realize that because, you know, it doesn't come out of the UX budget. Right. And you never see it. Right. Yeah. Unless you know to look for it. And so you start looking for these things. You can see the evidence of it everywhere. And because you can see the evidence of it, in all these different places, now, suddenly, you can start to report that, yeah. that. And so, the when people start talking about, well, we have to invest in UX, there's an underlying assumption that that's a new investment. Mm-hmm. And the reality is, it's almost never a new investment. What we're doing is we're shifting the investment for what we pay to handle the poor UX through support or lost sales or whatever, we're shifting that investment to building a better product.
1: Right, right.
0: And that's what companies like like Apple do, is that they, and Netflix and, and other organizations, they look at where are we spending money already because we've delivered something that is subpar? And how do we... Change the product experience so that people don't call support, so that they don't return things, so that they they continue to buy from us.
1: Right, right. I think that that gives you a good way to maybe start UX, where you're looking at you know the support forums or all the tickets and start grouping them and it's like, oh, okay, the support team or call center it's costing this much just for this group of tickets or this type of tickets, right? Like right. people don't know how to reset their password or something. Okay. If we figure out how to make password reset easier, we're going to save X dollars. because we, we,
0: Yeah. There was one company we worked with where password resets were costing the organization $75 million a year in support calls.
1: That's crazy. Right? <laughs> That's a lot. And of
0: money. it turned out it was a two to $3 million fix to to in the software, yeah. That's... But the problem was was that the person who handled support, you know, the head of support, didn't report into the tech chain of command. So the budget for support calls was a completely separate budget than the budget for technology. And the tech people couldn't get the budget to fix the problem.
1: Yeah. And you and you see how these big organizations, this is why you have a crappy product, because I can't get the budget. And it's like, it's, it's really your problem.
0: Right. But- <laughs> and it turns out that budget allocation, that was a UX issue. Yeah. The person who was deciding where the budget got allocated, that was a UX decision. Mm-hmm. And people didn't realize that. So you have to think
1: holistically. The organization has to think holistically that it's all connected. Exactly. Not, not operate in silos. Oh,
0: and, and the thing is organizations know how to do this, right? They, they, when it comes to things like sales, they're very holistic. Many organizations, it's very rare to find an organization that explicitly does things that, to kill sales. Right. Everybody's focused on increasing sales, and they 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 make holistic decisions all, from the top all the way down, and everybody thinks about that. So it's possible within organizations to do that. It's just that that thinking about UX as as a way to do this is a new thing, yeah. because in the old days, if we had a bad user experience, the the salespeople would would Deal with that, mm-hmm. and but now in in this world where some large portion of your sales never talk to any employees in the company,
1: right?
0: And, it's when a company
1: scales, and you know the way it scales.
0: Yeah, it, there's virtually no conversation mm-hmm. about the user experience plays into the marketing and the sales and the support of a given product, right? We we tend to think of user experience as the, and, and we're just as guilty of this. I mean, you know, as an industry, we're guilty that, that when we talk about user experience, we immediately jump to, you know, let me show you what this app does. Let me show you what this right. screen does. And and we we keep, we focus on the digital. And, but from the very beginning, you know, when, when Don Norman back in 93 first coined the term user experience, he was talking about uh, a holistic user experience that sure. everything a user touches. And it's not an accident that he coined the term when he was at Apple yeah. and that Apple adopted that as sort of the core of where they were going. Yeah. And he, you know, that is where user experience started. And and over the years we've just made it about, you know, how do we make onboarding of you know <laughs> yeah. a better a better thing.
1: Right, right. Just the screens. Well thank you, Jared. Um... This has been one of the most intellectually stimulating conversations and I'll... Uh, oh, you need sure. to
0: get out more. Yeah, I do. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but uh, where, where can people find you uh, if they'd like to know more?
0: Well, right now I'm in the living room. <laughs> where can they find me? So we have a community called Leaders of Awesomeness that is a free community for UX leaders to learn more, we spend most of our time there talking about strategic user experience stuff. So, the 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 things that I've been focusing on over the last few years that that's where we we do that. So that's a good place to find me. Of course, I'm on LinkedIn and the Twitters at, at @jmspool where I tweet about design and design strategy and design education and the wacky habits of our political system. You can find me in. In all the places, <laughs> I don't hide. Great.
1: Well, thank you so much, Jared. It's been a real pleasure to have you on the show.
0: Well, thanks for encouraging my behavior and, and keep up your good work and and love what you're doing with, with your business.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us on this episode of What is UX? If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. If you leave us a review, I'll make sure to shout it out on the show. If you have any questions, send them to questions at whatisux.co and our guest and I will try to answer them on the show. And you can always find us on whatisux.co. See you on the next one.